this episode is about simple truths versus complex truths. We live in a very, very intellectual world, especially in the Western world, all over the world, any place that has democracy and uh, capitalism, regardless of the governmental infrastructure uh, that manages those two things. Um, and what, what this combination is called when you have democracy and uh, capitalism, regardless if your government is a republic or, you know, a monarchy or, uh, you know, a, a dictator or socialistic in nature, um, is pretty irrelevant to the relationship between democracy and capitalism. Um, this is how what I call natural capitalism, like trade and barter, commerce, that kind of stuff, uh, simple commerce. That's how um, those sort of things get managed by middlemen um, because it needs a governmental side. Um, it doesn't matter what the governmental side is because it also uh, naturally enables industry, specifically industrialism, um, which eventually gets to the point, if not starting out immediately with conglomerate style industrialism. Um, there are usually uh, three industrial leaders, industrialism leaders um, in a democracy uh, capitalism model. Um, you have the industry leader that has most of the customers. You have the number two, which has um, the largest portion of customers other than the largest um, that, as compared to everyone else. And then the third one is just the largest of everyone else. This is explored really, really well in... Uh, the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing um, by Jack Reese. That is a really, really good book that uh, sparked the growth hacking revolution um, in the early 90s. It came out, I think, early 90s, late 80s. I forget exactly, but it's, it's, it's about as old as the tech industry. Um, now, see, the thing isn't that democracy and capitalism are bad. That's not my point. It's, it's realizing that everyone believes that it will be natural capitalism and natural democracy, and they can experiment with their government, which they're all involved with, um, because of the lack of information on what industrialism is. Um, it's somebody who has been a consultant for industrialism in all of the major silos from uh, political to governmental to uh, tech to Hollywood. Um, I, I went around because my goal was to find people that would practice um, what I was calling anti-fragile uh, mental health in their business. And what I realized is it was fairly easy to sell people on um, when what they were going for was 
a more ethical position in the world, but I realized they they sacrificed in at least one or two silos of whatever it is they were doing and how they looked at what those silos were. Like it was a percentage of their brain was not willing to let go of what the rest of their brain was able to let go of from, you know, their competition or how things are or were. Um, but there were some things that were just so painful to let go that it was only a matter of time before I realized that the things that were all connected in these people that they were afraid to let go of um, were all all able to be tied back to some sort of addiction to control, not being willing to give up control, which is interesting because what I call anti-fragile mental health is literally letting go of self-control to come into self-mastery. Robert Greene talks about self-mastery a lot um, you know, other people who have studied Stoicism or nomadic Christianity uh, understand that, you know, letting go of control is the ethical next step that once you've mastered self-control, it's time to go into self-mastery. It's realizing that unless you believe that you're just waiting to go out and murder and rape and pillage and, you know, do all these things that you'd be afraid other people did if they let go of control, um, then you actually are ready to start working on self-mastery where you realize that the principles, the moral principles that you've learned, it's now time to adapt them to yourself and what you need to do in the world. Not to justify immorality, but so that you can actually excel in a way where you don't have to compromise and sacrifice ethics because that's just the way the world works and you don't know how to do it differently. This is something that is baked into industrialism. It's realizing that every single startup like Google or Facebook starts out with a socialist model. Like, Literally, like they're doing limiting, limited funding and they have to get to a certain goal. And if they don't, they fail. And that fail point, like that, that goal is also in socialism governments. When you get to that like choice point, you realize, okay, we either have to admit we failed and try again completely anew from the beginning, or we just save face and start, you know, forcing people. This is, this is where the checks and balances in socialism practiced in capitalism has invented uh, everything from like venture deals where you have startups that it's not about making money until they get the attention needed to go from a socialist model to a capitalist model. But this lack of understanding of industrialism is baked into the core of our education that with further analysis this past year, my NGO has discovered that these principles that are not being taught are actually being taught like with just enough to believe in them, but not enough to understand them, if that makes sense. That's the equivalent of indoctrination. The thing is, is it's not every topic in school. It's just key topics. It's why they don't teach budgeting in school. It's why they don't teach 
like things like how to pay your taxes or why, you know, why the taxation system works. Budgeting is cooked into that. It's they'd rather people believe that they have to pay for certain things, not because the goal is that government will abuse these, but because of this unknown. It's it's interesting. It's almost like when I hear conspiracy people talk about, which I, I respect, I, I don't necessarily believe in everything they say, but what's interesting is from a quant perspective, every piece of data matters. You just remove the sentiment, otherwise the feelings and belief from it, to see how it matters. And this is really interesting because the conspiracy theorists, they, they tend to talk about esoteric information at the top. When interestingly enough, the top has the same esoteric information as those on the bottom, as in like criminal cartels, mafia type people. And it's, it's not actually that they have some secret recipe for success, some secret answers that they're not sharing with the rest of us. They are literally banking on the belief that we don't know how their system works on the top and the bottom. And the esoteric information is literally secrets that when you go looking for that secret sauce, a secret recipe, you realize that, oh, everything that they're doing on the criminal bottom is the th same thing they're doing on the top. It's, it's moral relativity in a way where they teach us circular morality in the middle so that when we try and find where their secrets lie, we're running around in circles with our reasoning to try and explain how we see a problem, but we don't have the answers. It's because the answers that we're looking for are backwards. It's You need to look at how the answers are the same as at the bottom. It's not secret information. It's lack thereof knowledge and information. And the reason we can't identify this is because we are so afraid of the groups that are talking about this knowledge because it's been labeled by the people on the top as mystical, as, you know, taboo, as, you know, illegal, even criminal, which is interesting because knowledge can never be criminal unless you're living in, you know, some sort of radical society that wants to censor information. So it's it's usually illegal unless you live in a country that um, has made certain types of knowledge criminal. Um, and there are other ways to make these things feel criminal, such as you know, calling them evil or calling them dark or calling them, you know, a cult, which is, that's an interesting word, a cult. Um, the root of the word I learned from the conspiracy theorist is actually means hidden knowledge, which is kind of ironic because what I see people use at the top that the people at the bottom don't use is Overt marketing tactics. In other words, Bernaysian-style school of marketing where they use Freudian control, uh, psychoanalytic methods to manipulate people um, through PR and advertising, which Edward Bernays uh, not only invented but like literally wrote the book on. Uh, started with PR, which was 
rooted from his first book called Propaganda, and he was a propaganda consultant until World War II um, that provided a lot of really bad PR for him. Um, So he uh, rebranded propaganda into PR in America to, you know, be able to protect his image and the image of his clients, which is corporate America at this time. Um, what's interesting is in the 1960s, this, uh, this became a revolution, the anti-consumerist uh, movement, which I, I remember being educated on the anti-capitalist movement, but it was actually, um, it was actually anti-industrialism, anti, uh, anti, uh, uh, consumerist, which is interesting because I think that that is rooted in why it was not successful because enough people didn't know the difference between capitalism and industrialism. I still see a lot of people, um, think that they call industrialism centralization when centralization can happen on a tiny level and a really big level, really top level and you know the bottom level like criminals they centralize too um what's interesting is is centralization once it gets past a certain point is when it starts to become industrialized this is when a startup can you know hit a capitalist model and then in the goal for profits usually about the time they get into you know a publicly traded company There's a transition. That's like the start of the ball roll. It's realizing that eventually it will lose control of its own business model because their shareholders and board members and all these things can start to influence things in a way by using time as a tool against them to turn even, you know, the most well-grounded capitalist model into an industrial titan. And this is tough because you can be the owner of the company and have it influenced behind the scenes in a way where you are leveraged um, to be the fall guy if you say otherwise. This is um, one of those things that, you know, you have to have empathy for the people that wrong you to be able to see that even industrial titans like Facebook and Google have been around long enough and on Wall Street long enough that things can have moved around in the background so that they lose less and less of their company. And then all it takes is, you know, a stock scare or something like a piece of news that just the public loses faith in the general investors And then the stock price comes back up because government interest investors that are on the industrialism side, where industrialism and big government are one in the same. It's it's a cancer that infects both capitalism and democracy. This is the thing. It's uh, I go into this pretty and deep in my new book coming out uh, about culturism is what I call this, where culturism is how this um, perverse, unethical cancer of centralization happens. The higher up things go, or the deeper down things go into the criminal underbelly. And you have, uh, 
You have what I call culturism, which can infect everything from democracy, everything from capitalism, um, every, every type of governmental form, every type of you know, religion, every type of political party, even sports teams, even, you know, everything can be infected by culturism, which is essentially the cult of industrialism type thinking that you want to get quote unquote world domineering, but it's, it's a, it really is a fool's errand. Even if you're doing it for the greater good, the best thing to do is to actually decentralize your efforts when you get to a certain point. It's realizing that this is kind of what Jeff Bezos does by not internalizing the companies that they partner with, but they find people that are aligned with impact to the point where you know they're they're working with them in direct relationship, open sourcing both of their knowledge bases. Until, you know, maybe they do or they don't benefit from integrating with Amazon. Like Zappos has never benefited from integrating with the Amazon brand. But like CreateSpace just recently integrated with the Amazon brand. This is something it could have been, you know, an exit strategy for the CreateSpace people, which is great because Amazon can afford to help them exit when they realize they've done the most they can to get things to the point where it can be maintained and innovated on by just any engineers that Amazon has. And that's, that's a great exit strategy, but for something like Zappos, you know, it's, it's got its own brand presence where create space was literally just a funnel to get, you know, your books efficiently on Amazon and stores. So it made more sense to internalize it. This is an ethical capitalist model that is actually anti-industrialist in nature. What's really smart about Jeff Bezos is the fact that he's not saying that it's anti-industrialist. Anti-movements don't ever gain traction, period. There's something psychologically founded in even saying something is anti-this or anti-that that over time gives power to your enemy. It's realizing that I can say that what Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are doing is anti-industrialist because like I would get discredited by the mainstream that is funded and survives off of the teat of industrialism through the culturism model and realizing I would immediately identify be able to identify the people that hate me are brainwashed by this culturism of industrialism and the people that listen to me are the people who um, see a different ethical way. They see the writing on the wall, but they don't understand what it means. And this is because of a separation, a siloing of education, marketing, and new information. New information is everything from news to entertainment to books, fiction, nonfiction, movies, cinema, uh, documentaries, like anything mainstream media, entertainment and otherwise, um, is all influenced by the same conglomerate industrial heads, same, same industrial legal firms. It's, it's really, really interesting how they play fiction and nonfiction in every single silo, 
brilliantly where they uh, they all sound different, but they they also all rhyme. And that's really important to, to listen to how things rhyme. Um, there is a principle in marketing that I don't know if anyone else has discovered, but it's if you want people to pay attention to something, you tell them what's bad. If you want people to look at something, you tell them what's good. If you want people to ignore something, you mock it and then you show them how to ignore it through your example. You don't say anything. You just mock it and then you lead by example because actions really do speak louder than words. It's realizing in a world that treats hypocrisy like we should treat contradiction that logic and logical fallacies are all but forgotten. And it seems like everyone has an understanding of some of the logical fallacies. And regardless of if they're religious or not, they play that, you know, (laughs) selective belief game in logical fallacies where they don't believe they have to practice all of them. And then they get mad when other people call them unreasonable because if everyone's practicing selective reasoning, That's why everything seems like circular reasoning when we communicate with people that think different. And it's not about which different is right. It's about how can we all be right by combining our ways to think different. It's realizing that what Steve Jobs did and Steve Wozniak did wasn't conformed to one or the other. They both thought different. And then bridging that creative and engineering gap is what brought us a world today where computers aren't the playthings of engineers from the point of view of creatives. Now, computers are also a tool for engineers, and engineers see the benefit in building tools for creatives. But also, a lot of those engineers become the middlemen of creatives. They want to create a software as a service because they can and you know make immense profit off of zero marginal cost. They've industrialized tech for creatives where creatives have become essentially the new slaves of tech. And what's interesting is, is you know, it worked. It worked for a long time, but now we're realizing this is not sustainable. That's why they've been pushing STEM for like a decade and now... Google, Facebook, and Amazon, Apple, and you know Elon Musk are all saying, yeah, we were not only wrong about STEM, but we no longer trust college degrees. It's like we, we want people that are people people. It's realizing that over the past decade, people have, number one, graduated less in human subjects like communication, listening, those kind of things. And what's interesting is the engineers have pushed things to the limit and they're like, okay, we're working on AI. We need psychologists. We need neuro, you know, neuropsychiatrists. We need like neurologists. We need brain surgeons to help us understand how to not just make an intelligent brain, but to make an emotionally aware brain so that the machines can listen to people and not just record what they say and use it against them. That's that's the difference between an emotional brain and an intelligent brain. And it's realizing that the more and more we focused on what's good for engineering, even the engineers at the top are saying, yeah, we need less engineers and we need more people who know how to talk to people. 
It's we they can't hire anyone from well not anyone. They're saying how difficult it is to hire from engineers within, and the engineers within are getting really pissed that they're not getting promoted because they don't have emotional awareness, they don't have emotional intelligence. And this is simply because the industrialist model, which even the industrial titans in tech that I'm real impressed with, you know, Google and Facebook's willingness to give up, you know, the need for college degrees to work with them on a systemic level um, is a great first step. Whether or not they are following suit of the rest or trying to gain traction, fighting against this cancer that has grown inside of them and cutting it out like a cancer you know, I can only speculate. I, I hope the best, even for my enemies, that they figure out how to, uh, you know, right their wrongs that may not even be worth blaming them for. It's realizing we may be limiting ourselves and them by wanting to blame them and judge them and hold them accountable for the grievances that if, if, uh, if they told us the truth, Things could get drastically worse for us. We desperately need to rethink the divides we're creating in this world by raising awareness of divides in this world because it it looks to me like we're just reinforcing divides uh, the same way um, we did by not being aware of, you know, our emotional wrongness because of a lack of emotional intelligence. This is what happened after the emancipation of the slaves in America. Um, People had gotten close enough to, you know, the the humans that were slaves, whether they were in the North as uh, mostly indentured slaves, which we mostly now called indentured servants, but they were for the most part called indentured slaves in the North and then uh, industrialized slavery in the South, which was about force, indoctrination, fear, um, brainwashing. Usually they used religious tools that gave them hope after death. Um, it didn't really matter what the religion was as long as the hope came after death. This is you know, what some psychologists call the vacation mindset or the working for retirement mindset or you know, working for the weekend or the holiday. Um, And this was a very, very powerful tool to be used for um, industrialized slavery that was used in the South. That was, interestingly enough, the same sort of industrialized slavery that led to um, the the original hope after death marketing model of religion um, in Europe at the time when they did a a marketing campaign um, for a new religion at that time that's become pretty mainstream now. Um, and they did a marketing campaign for a certain detail in that religion um, that brought a whole new type of focus of hope after death, which was really, really valuable for brainwashing slaves in the beginning of the British Empire and the beginning of the American Empire. And then you had this moral epidemic where in the North where you had indentured indentured slavery where it was all contracted and um, – uh, realizing it was more like servants and it had terms and limits. Um, and also they could run away at any time, but they got paid at the end of a contract. Um, and they were just taking care of enough while living 
out the contract. So that was uh, that was how they did it in the north, and they got to know the people who were most traditionally slaves in the north, such as you know uh, blacks and Irish and um, even early early Italians. Um, really, just all the immigrants. It, it cycled through them, and runaway slaves often became uh, runaway southern slaves um, became indentured slaves in the north because it had terms and they could have references and resources that um, afterwards for skills that you know they had from forced slavery um, in the south Um, what's really interesting is um, it's it's not saying that the tools they used were bad it's realizing that at, at the fundamentals this is just uh, middleman business models. It's, um, but one was obviously way more ethical than the other to the point now where, you know, after um, industrialized slavery fell in the South, it wasn't much longer until um, indentured slavery became indentured servitude and indentured servitude was made illegal in the U.S. This may or may not have happened um, if we had reintegrated the South into America. There's a lot of debate where I see really solid arguments on both sides of, you know, the fact that, yeah, the South was doing things that were really, really inhumane. But when we forced them to stop, we we're actually invading a different country at that point for a moral high ground when we could have just outmaneuvered them in commerce um, through trade deals and, you know, said that it, it was not acceptable to do trade deals with them. Um, but instead of doing that, we forced them to stop, which we could have just bankrupted them, it, it, but the thing is, is Lincoln was under a lot of pressure because um, the seventy-year debt was due from the signing of the Constitution. That was due to uh, the bankers that funded the American colonies, and he had to figure out something. And that's when he incorporated the United States. That's why the United States on the Constitution has a lowercase U. And the United States now has an uppercase U that has to do with legal contract writing. Um, and this is uh, this is why you have essentially a city-state in Washington, D.C., where it's an incorporated city. Um, you also have this where the Bank of England is and the Vatican and Vatican City. There are a lot of conspiracy theories on this, but from a legal standpoint, um that just makes them operate like a nation, um, but they don't. They have the the rights of citizens as private property owners, as opposed to having to do things like um, a government would have to interact with people, even on like a state, a city, or national level, which is really really. E- interesting because legally that treats them like not just how a normal citizen would use a corporation but actually it it gives them really no oversight whatsoever um, from any government or corporation which is really 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 interesting this is why 
incorporated land is used in a lot of different ways, but when it comes to an actual city, um, the, the the only ones that are actually self-sustainable are uh, D.C., the incorporated city of London within the city of London, and Vatican City within the larger city of Rome. This is really interesting how this works on a legal level. Um, I'm I'm more of a marketer. I, I have a lot of interest in anything psychology and mental health related. So I understand these things. I'm able to tell stories about them. But I fail when explaining the how or the why. There are a lot of people that do this a lot better than me. Um, just really, you know, Google it. Google um, or search on YouTube about um, what it is to be an incorporated city, um, things about incorporated cities. Um, realize unless you are looking to be converted to conspiracy um, or a cult or other things, um, realize how important you wanting to do something is in being converted. It's not a magical process. Unless you want it to happen, you won't get converted. This is something that I, I find is a big fear in a lot of people. Um, they're afraid to learn about things that are different for fear of it corrupting their mind. Um, when that's not the case, it's realizing that, uh, you know, if people don't want to learn math, they're not going to understand math. And if they, you know, learn some math, it's, it's not going to turn into a snowball effect of brainwashing that they eventually become a mathematician. This is, this is the same thing that, this is the same principle of attaining knowledge that applies to occult or conspiracy or religions that, you know, you believe are wrong. Realize that if you believe that they're wrong, all you have to do is listen. You don't have to believe them completely, but there are little details scattered between, you know, what different people think, how they think different, that you can help bring balance to with your perspective. Realize it's not about fixing them. It's about listening to them and talking about it intellectually in a way that industrialism has really, really conditioned us to treat it like nails on a chalkboard. We all have these nails on a chalkboard reaction. Some people, it's, you know, hearing a dial-up modem. Other people, it's hearing brake screech. You know, other people, it's hearing children cry. These are the nails on the chalkboard thing. And it's it's interesting because that's that's the kind of stuff that psychologically manifests when we are conditioned to hate certain things that we don't want instead of just realizing it's okay to not want certain things. You don't have to hate kids screaming and crying just because you don't want kids. You don't have to hate, you know, chalk on a chalkboard sound because you hate school. You don't have to hate things that are different just because you don't want to be different. It's really, really okay to be who you are. And what's interesting is the industrialists have done such a good job at siloing things, which is talked a lot in growth hacking knowledge. It's realizing I learned more about um, anti-fragile mental health from <laughs> combining what I learned about growth hacking and how they talk about silos 
uh, silos and companies, I realized we have silos in our mind. And when I applied this to what, you know, psychologists are saying, but it's it's interesting how psychology was founded from psychological study, which was literally the study of trying to find reason within what they called psychobabble at one point. And now the study of psychology has led to psychologists saying things that sound like psychobabble to us, which ironically makes us feel about the same way we used to feel when we heard psychobabble before we knew how to systemically know what could go right or wrong from the study of psychology. And now we're more afraid of psychobabble than the old type of psychobabble than we ever have been. And we label the psychologist as speaking psychobabble when trying to explain to us why we shouldn't be afraid of it. It's it's what I call a mental unhealth phenomenon, which was apparent in the 1880s. It's why Nellie Bly went, you know, undercover to an insane asylum in New York and then drugged their dirty business through the streets. And what's interesting is psychologists today, they're not allowed to drag people's dirty secrets through the streets in America with American ethics. This is something that it's it's not that it's, you know... It's illegal in America to do this, ethically speaking, for psychologists. But there isn't an illegal thing for when psychologists in other parts of the world do it. So what's interesting is you have someone like Jordan Peterson who practices in Canada, which is allowed to speak out about psychological stuff in ways that in America are used to justify as, you know, you're not allowed to publicly diagnose people, which is unethical. You could lose your license and the ability to practice. But what's interesting is, is Jordan Peterson has proven that there's a huge demand for this in the marketplace. And we need other psychologists in America to realize that as soon as you start speaking out about it publicly, like even if you lose your license, you know the reason why. And you know how to talk about it in a way that um, will not sound conspiracy. And if people choose to believe that it can, it's conspiracy, realize that, you know, you can make money as an influencer just as easily as Jordan Peterson. And the whole, the whole, system will benefit from having a different point of view, a different way of talking, a different way of speaking. It's realizing, you know, we need more male psychologists that are, you know, highly disagreeable, but highly conscientious to, you know, tag team with uh, Jordan Peterson as a male psychologist with, you know, agreeable and highly conscientious. It's realizing that would be a great tag team for explaining the masculine, how to find harmony in ways that, you know, a lot of people on the left don't realize that Jordan Peterson is on the left. So they lump him in with the alt-right because he needs that harmony for the masculine speaking. And it needs that authority in a society that is, you know, a masculine hierarchy, which has nothing to do with male sex. It's, it's, it has to do with a masculine personality type taken to an extreme, not finding harmony between the masculine and the feminine, um, which is really interesting because somebody who is highly disagreeable and highly conscientious and understanding in psychology, practice in psychology, could team up with Jordan Peterson in a way where it brings balance, where 
you know, it's it's not just the man on the hill saying repent, <laughs> and the people that are just like him are dissenting the most, and the people that are the furthest thing from being on the left like him are the ones that are hearing the reason that they needed to to change over time. The fact that it's not an immediate change is, I think, why people judge them the most. Um, but it's a gradual change. Anyone who understands psychology realizes that it's not an immediate shift. It's realizing you keep practicing it until you get it and you don't need to practice it by learning it anymore. Now you just practice it by doing and you're your own teacher. You're parenting yourself like, you know, it's just there are a lot of a lot of psychologists talking about parenting yourself. Um I I really like Brene Brown and other ones that it's interesting how we need that feminine mindset to explain this to us, but we live in um, an extreme masculine hierarchy world that we don't listen to anyone of the female sex when they speak with authority. And this is this has to do with the benefit of um, overtly masculine systems, extreme masculine systems like industrialism. Um, this is why we remember Martin Luther King Jr. and Harvey Milk and uh, Alan Turing and Ben Franklin, but we don't remember um, the whys of why they were important of people like, you know, uh, uh, John Adams' wife. Uh, shoot, I I can't believe I can't remember her name right now. And Nellie Bly. Like that's the whole point. It's like we we are given so little information and it's mentioned to us. We might have done it on a test, but realize tests are designed to prove that you know something, but they're they're actually proven to not make a lasting memory. <laughs> <laughs> which is really interesting because as soon as fear is involved with taking a test um, is even if you pass the test, it, it fails you in its purpose of educating you. And this is why, you know, I can know about why John Adams' wife is so vital to the formation of our nation and all the other wives are so vital to the formation of the American nation and it's as easy to remember them as why Nellie Bly was important. Know her why, who she was, what she did, what she did after what she did, how she helped him. Those are the things that are forgotten, not because people are brainwashing us to, you know, not learn these things, but because since they don't care about these things, we're learning from their actions, if that makes sense. Um, this is also why the Vatican could have come out about, you know, there was a 13th apostle and it happened to be Mary Magdalene. They lied hundreds of years ago about Mary Magdalene being a prostitute and they changed that and that she was actually the 13th apostle. She was different than, you know, the prostitute from, you know, the parable of casting stones and, you know, the Vatican itself came out about this cover up. And people didn't care, even though this should have been like headline news all over the world. 
People didn't care because in an overtly masculine hierarchy industrialized society, that's something that people can see, not know whether or not they should believe because they don't take the time to investigate anything beyond beliefs. So they don't know how to fact check facts. So they really only learn about the things that reinforce their beliefs. So they will remember that as long as they can to not verify it in order to believe it other than what they know to believe until eventually they forget it, which it's different for different people. Some people forget, you know, in a matter of days or weeks, um, but pretty much everyone that practices um, centralization right now, centralization that is a part of um, major centralized distribution of centralized centralized power, which is exactly what industrialization is. It's distribution of centralized power that all funnels up to one centralized source. So that's the industrialized top and the umbrella underneath of all the centralized things that are owned by the industrial titan at the top. Um, these are the kind of models that um, innovators like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are underthrowing. It's why they keep working despite the fact that the industrialists said they would never work and they're working more and more. They're also working despite being, you know, on Wall Street, which is why industrialists are labeling them as the industrial monopolists when actually from a logical standpoint, they are the furthest thing from it. And we just don't have the information, the data, the knowledge to know these things. Um, that's, if you go to historyofpropaganda.com, you can see how this was built up and started before anyone that's alive right now was alive. It's all like, <laughs> it's interesting. This started in the beginning of the 1900s. If you go to historyofpropaganda.com, you will be taken to a social learning group on Facebook uh, interestingly enough, one of the industrial titans right now that I have a lot of hope for um, because I believe that they're smart enough to correct their path and right the wrongs that they got into because no one had gotten up that high that ever started out like they did or Google did. And I think that they're working on a top level to break through that veil of secrecy, that false esoteric um secrecy that's held together by contracts and obligations and you know threat of being thrown in jail or labeled a criminal this is this is how it's held together it's a web of contracts not necessarily even a web of lies unless you can believe that some contracts are about enforcing lies then yeah it's definitely a web of contracts and lies um so what's interesting is um, at this historyofpropaganda.com, um, you can go there and it's a social learning group that has a four part documentary that was in, that was released in the UK. Um, I think it aired once, but I don't believe it ever aired here in America. Um, I don't, I don't know for sure if it aired more than once in the UK, but it doesn't look like it gained any traction. Um, this is this is really interesting because, I mean, this this goes to show that 
you know, it didn't gain traction in America because it was about American industrialism that, you know, evidence shows it, it was originally funded way before American industrialism, industrialism took off in the early 1900s. Um, and it built up that way because of the fall of British industrialism in the 1800s and America started to take over. And, um, that's, uh, that's, that's a whole different story that isn't covered in the history of propaganda yet, but it will be. Um, there are a lot of books on this. We're working on turning this into easier to digest information, but check out history of Um, you might have to spell check propaganda. Some people switch out an O with an A. Um, so check the spelling on that. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely be getting a URL that doesn't need to uh, be spell checked. So if you have any suggestions on that, we are open for it. Um, and if you go to video.historyofpropaganda.com, that will take you right to all four parts played out. And it's it's four hours, so it takes a lot of time to get through all four parts. But if this, these are the kind of things that, you know, you you don't want to listen to conspiracy theorists too much. And I, I get you. I get you because, you know it's it's new data mixed in with a lot of new beliefs that make a lot of people uncomfortable um this is this is just the data without the beliefs removed realize that it's so neutral that a lot of people go into this documentary thinking that it's pro freud when in reality it's showing how um freud started out kind of neutral um and then became um, involved with industrialism, even though he was originally in, against it. But after the fall of, you know, his empire because of the rise of the Nazis and he was left penniless and homeless, um, he teamed up with his cousin or nephew, Edward Bernays, who he didn't really approve of how he was using it to manipulate the masses. But then he joined forces with him to, you know, save face and he didn't like being poor and homeless. Who who can blame him? Like I I don't I don't judge him for that, but I definitely understand how the temptation hit him with just natural consequences. And then Freud became the Freud that we know, and his daughter Anna Freud went on to you know not just perpetuate PR, um, but also she invented the admin society. That if you ever watched Mad Men, that was. That was her working behind the scenes that we never really knew about the relationship between Edward Bernays, the Freuds, Freudian control, and then how in the 80s we were taught that Freudian control was bad, <clears throat> but it, it still goes on from the industrialist perspective, and they teamed up with um, people that you know I used to worship, like Ronald Reagan, um, to help really, really entice the... Um, kind of like awakening individualist movement of the 1960s and 70s. And he was exactly the individual that they wanted to be like, but he was, it really, really broke my heart to realize what I learned from this documentary. And it was humbling because I realized, you know, it's not about blaming Reagan. It's realizing he was manipulated and I was never taught how because the why would have made me, you know, 
fight for Reagan's honor and go against the exact system that they wanted us to buy into by, you know, using Reagan as a pawn, which like broke my heart to a level that I just, I have a hard time expressing um, to realize that this abuse um, was number one used to turn him into pretty much a deity for a lot of the working class. And uh, it was abused to an extent that it blinded me from having true empathy of Reagan to a point where he was abused so much like and manipulated so much that when he got into office, he said some things that like aren't in the documentary, but like made people think like he like if he didn't realize how bad things were and he had to go back on some of his promises because he didn't realize how bad things were, if they could dupe the president and dupe him so bad that he actually doesn't have the power to change things the way he wanted to, that just conditions people. If he stays in office that they have no, if the president can't have power to change these things, who are you to have this power? And it's interesting because brainwashing has so many different terms, social conditioning, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, all of them feel more taboo than the last. When in reality, you know, it's just a type of learning that is a disparity of knowledge where one side benefits more than the other. Um, And they're very, very intelligent people can be brainwashed. It's realizing that it's more important to have people brainwashed in a small percentage of what they believe and think than the entirety of what they believe and think. That way they can be pulled and they can be orchestrated like puppets on strings. It's like a different puppet on each string. It's realizing, you know, you think everyone's doing something that they shouldn't be doing around you, but they're all being pulled by, you know, a different finger on the same hand. And that's really, really interesting because that's what corporate conglomeratism is and why capitalists can see, you know, big business as being the same thing as big government and socialists can see uh, big government as being the same thing as big business. But when they communicate how they think different, it, it sounds like nails on a chalkboard to both of them. When the answers that they seek are actually in listening and understanding to each other, not converting to one another, but learning how to unite and work together the same way capitalism and socialism did to invent startups and venture funding. It's realizing history, economic history is cycles of trying something new and crazy, figuring out it works and then taking it too far and having it to having it be corrected to, you know, try again. That's how things work. And we live in an illusion of a linear up society. It's kind of like in Silicon Valley, always blue, always blue. It's always up, always up, always up. It's, it's a fragile construct. It's a really, really fragile construct. We have illusions of market corrections, but we haven't had a market correction since the market crash before the crash that we call the great crash. And this is... This is something we really need to be aware of because if things were to stop going in this always up, always up, always up mania delusion, we have to correct that bottom that this has been going on for a century. 
and realize that this industrialized system needs to crash and come down completely for things to reset, which we can learn from their methods of bubble hopping and realize we can use that as an infrastructure hop. They are just the infrastructure. They hop bubbles from, you know, the housing bubble to the education bubble. When that pops, the education bubble is tied directly to the faith in the dollar. The dollar will pop. That's why, you know, you need to not just think that because what happened in the great crash will happen again. Actually, that's a false concept. It's what happened before that great crash, before the roaring 20s will happen where it's, you know, it's it's not the Great Depression. We would actually reset by switching infrastructures from the infrastructure that was built before the crash, before the, the great crash. We go back to switching infrastructures. They tried, they went full swing into the industrialism infrastructure that we know today by marrying big business with, by inventing big government. That's when, you know, big business started buying politicians in the 1800s, um, which we learn about in, you know, industrialist propaganda. We can actually learn something from industrialist propaganda, like The Men Who Built America, uh, a documentary on HBO where they conveniently start right after the Civil War. Don't mention anything that happened between, you know, the signing of, you know, the the formation of America to uh, the Civil War. They just recently came out with a second documentary that goes from, you know, the colonists all the way up to the starting of America, but they leave a gap (laughs) between the early 1800s to the end of the Civil War that, you know, is even if you tell the history accurately without any bias, it still sounds like conspiracy because it feels like conspiracy because it it sounds anti-capitalist in nature because it's actually anti-industrialist. And that's the thing, when industrialism and capitalism feel so similar that when socialists can tell us, you know, why they believe capitalism is bad, and they're really talking about industrialism, which is the same thing that capitalists call, you know, crony capitalists or big business and wanting to fix big business. It's capitalism isn't bad. There's natural capitalism. Industrialism is natural capitalism being abused once a certain amount of power or money or influence is gained. That's why the languages they speak are um, political power, capital, money. Um, They don't even call money money because capital to them, it goes far beyond what we consider money or currency. So they have capital, they have influence, which is celebrity. Capital, influence are, are the two biggest ones right now. Political power is losing more power than ever. That's why they had to join up celebrity and influence from the biggest one in that industry, which is uh, reality TV. Everyone follows reality TV, even if they don't believe they follow reality TV. And that's why, you know, they had to revive politics because there was so much faith lost in uh, the 
political systems that they had to marry two industrialist systems, which was celebrity and political power uh, to keep the political power distribution arm uh, afloat. This is what happens when things start to collapse. You start to realize that they are propping up one arm with another arm and telling us they're, they're distracting us with a scarecrow. Um, to keep us from seeing the obvious. Um, Everyone who's been in the White House, including Trump in this administration, um, is somebody that is somehow tied to old industrialism that doesn't benefit from zero marginal costs, as Jeremy Rifkin talks about. Um, They have tried to make that wrong or criminal, like Hollywood tried to make sharing criminal and succeeded when they came to calling internet sharing internet piracy, which um, was really just a threat to their industrialist control that gives them the power to, you know, do the things that the Me Too movement are calling out against. It's realizing we need a whole industrialism reset for natural capitalism and natural government to be redefined in a digital age. There are a lot of organizations working on this, like Google it, like Radical exchange is a great example. Um, It will make everyone feel uncomfortable whether or not you're a devout capitalist or a devout socialist. It's going to make you uncomfortable. But realize that if you're able to understand it in context, which is really the most valuable currency when it comes to teaching people things in this world is if you can motivate them to invest through their discomfort to get the context of things, you will rule the world. Like that's, that's how the industrialists do it. And they train us to be afraid of, you know, uniting together, not tearing down the divides because that's actually a delusion. Like the, the divides were built by trying to tear each other down. That's why after the fall of slavery, Southern slavery, which I mentioned earlier, you had the rise of segregation. It's, Realizing because they weren't emotionally intelligent, which was gone into pretty heavily, um, and you you see the rise in the mental unhealth from lack of emotional intelligence, lack of emotional knowledge on a public level um, with people like Nellie Bly popping up in the 1880s to fight what was called uh, American anxiety, which now we just call anxiety because this... Uh, capitalist democratic model is all over the world in, you know, republics and socialist nations and, you know, monarchies all across the world. It's, it's used and it's not just American anxiety like it was in the 1800s. It's now just anxiety. Uh, this is a byproduct of practicing mental unhealth when you practice, uh, when you practice intellectual intelligence without emotional intelligence and realize that they try and justify um, emotional intelligence or emotional knowledge by replacing it with um, the, th- the third spoke on the stool, which is uh, uh, spiritual knowledge and spiritual intelligence. So you have uh, intellectual uh, knowledge, intellectual intelligence, which the people on the very top and the very bottom are actually Um, intellectually intelligent to the extreme and disregard emotional knowledge or they abuse emotional knowledge or spiritual knowledge 
to create an industrialized, hyper-intelligent, spiritual arm of their, you know, conglomerate empire or emotional arm of their conglomerate empire. But really what they're doing is saying that, you know, spiritual intelligence is taboo and wrong. That's why gurus are bad or wrong. That's why, you know, people can't be spiritually wise anymore. You just reject anyone that, you know, looks like this. They're all in cults. When the cults were scared of the most, there's only been like, I think like three, maybe half a dozen like death cults in American history. Um, the rest are just in direct competition by potentially undermining uh, the American model. And industrialism has done a good job in finding really, really big cults to abuse and manipulate. That's why after the fall of slavery, they innovated. They made indentured servitude and indentured slavery illegal um, since, you know, their model of industrialized slavery was illegal. That's how they got back at the North. And they started to find new ways to abuse this outcast class. They perpetuated the stigma against uh, blacks and released slaves. They started fear-mongering about them. And this grew the segregation divide, which created what I call a race cult, which has nothing to do with uh, cult as you know the word, but it has everything to do with what culturism is. And they abused this culture by making it different. They created a mental divide. And this kept each side from being able to understand each other by literally making it illegal to do the things that would make them understand each other the best, like, you know, integrated marriages you know, integrated dating, uh, integrated workplaces, segregation literally made, you know, racism worse. Um, and it was all for the benefit of having a class that doesn't, that isn't attributed the same privileges simply out of general consensus of fear. And they become an abused minority class. Um, what's interesting is, is this is necessary for um, indentured servitude and indentured slavery to work. This is why even in the North, indentured servitude and indentured slavery always had to find, you know, the new stigma class. It was the Italians. And then when the Italians made up so much of America, it became the Irish. And then after the Irish made up, you know, so much of America, it became the Jews. And then after the Jews made up so much of America, it, you know... It became, it, it was always, they had that baseline of the, you know, the African-Americans or the blacks or whatever you want to call them. I like, I, I can't keep track of political correctness. So I, I beg you to listen to what I mean and realize that the, like, this was the bottom line. Like they were the bottom line. Everything else was stacked on top of it. It was pure profit. Like they were, they were covering the marginal cost and, you know, the Italians or the Irish or the Jews, they were all, you know, they were all the profit margin and they could go through them. And that was, they created a bottom line. It's realizing that the same people who were controlling industrialized slavery in the South were also the ones that were either consultants or owned in some way, like a conglomerate fashion, uh, the 
indentured slavery models in the in the north even just by funding them like realize that like how important funding is for the success of not just an industrialized slavery in the south but um contracted uh term slavery in the north where they were little bit too liberal and progressive to want industrialized slavery in the South. And that funding, eventually they realized, well, if we cut off the funding of that and just redefine what slavery is, um, you know, we could have slave camps here, but people have to want people to be in the slave camps. Oh, we'll just make it the criminals. Um, the worst of the worst can be in there for their whole life, like, you know, our slaves used to be. Um, but everyone else is in there for, you know, terms. So it was contracted, you know, indentured servitude and slavery, which is legal if it, slavery and indentured slavery are legal if it happens in a prison because people want them to be in prison. This is why it's so important to realize that, you know, emancipating prisoners, that if we can realize that something like cannabis is not immoral and not criminal, that like nonviolent drug offenses like that it's like people harming themselves not anyone else they're not a danger to society just maybe you know a danger to themselves and the hearts of their family it's realizing that they are making the bottom line of the model that shifted from slavery and indentured slavery that was run and funded by you know the southerners that once they reintegrated they became very very interested in politics the Roosevelts were very, very interested in politics, and they were Southerners by family connections. And this is something that, you know, they, we, we need to understand that the Roosevelts, like FDR, he was, he was a headpiece. He was being abused by his family in ways that he, he was being manipulated to perpetuate the industrialist model without even knowing. And when he got out of hand, that's when, you know, he didn't go back for another term. Like he was useful enough even to get a third term. And then he started doing things that were outside of the industrialist script. And that's when he didn't get reelected. And this is the thing where nothing is absolute. It's realizing that like he was he was working for industrialism until he realized he wasn't. A lot of that had to do with, you know, his wife, like help them both wake up to that, like in the third term. And he started correcting a lot of things. And that's really important to know. You have to have empathy for these people to understand how if Reagan and FDR can be manipulated by industrialism. This is why industrialism needs to be so focused on why we need to understand who Edward Bernays is, how they mass-produced Freudian control and make us ignore Freud's teachings so that we don't realize that they're using them against us to control us on a subconscious level. This is why we you know, don't have an understanding of our conscious mind and subconscious mind on a mass level. We think that the subconscious is somehow mystical or just is, we can never understand it. Uh, you know, wake up call for me in marketing was realizing that, you know, marketers do understand the subconscious. They understand it better than 
most people are willing to believe even if they're told. That's why this feels like conspiracy and it's not. And it's realizing you have the choice to believe me like it's, you know, some conspiracy belief or you can educate on it on yourself with free resources that I'm talking about, like historyofpropaganda.com. Checking out those videos, starting there, like join that. Like there are lots of books that go into educating us on the missing things, the taboo things, whether you're a Republican, it's the Democrat things that educates you on without trying to convert you, not guilting you for not converting. Same thing, you know, if you're a socialist to learn about, you know, industrialism so you can do a better job fighting it without, you know, fighting capitalism, which is exactly what industrialism wants you to do. And if you're a capitalist fighting socialism and you don't believe the world could work without taxes, you need to learn more about, you know, people like FDR and all of these things. It's not about converting. You need to learn how the divides were literally built by trying to tear different down people that are different, ways of thinking that are different, trying to tear it down. That's how the divides were made. They were made with scars of trying to tear things down. So trying to tear down this wall of scars only reinforces it. We literally have to build bridges over it. Number one, so that we do the hard-ass work of not just tearing it down, which is in our minds easier than building a bridge over it, because that requires us asking ourselves, what am I doing wrong to not be able to understand this crazy person? Or what am I doing wrong to not be able to share what is valuable to me to this crazy person to make it valuable to them? It's, it's realizing we are so afraid of being wrong that we're not letting ourselves build these bridges. We have to build a bridge over the wall of scars so that future generations can ask, why don't we just tear down these walls? It's like, no, we have to, we have to keep going over this bridge because there's no way to tear them down. It's, we did this to ourselves. We did this to ourselves. And it's realizing over time, the wall of scars lessens, not by trying to tear it down, but by using the memory that industrialists hack for us, they benefit from us forgetting things and realizing if we forget about this wall of scars, eventually it heals itself because time heals that kind of thing. We need to use time as a tool, not the industrialist version of time where it's all linear and everything's a rush and on a timeline, you know, you got a weekly, you got a daily, you got a monthly, you got a quarterly, you got a yearly. <laughs> like, this is bullshit. They have multiple linear timelines on top of each other. It's not just, you know, the year and the month. You got the fiscal month, the fiscal year. <laughs> it's like, we got to realize that they are mastering time so that it feels like it's our enemy. So we don't realize that it's a tool. We think that it's a weapon coming to kill us. But really, it's just a sword painted on a shield. And all we can see is the sword painted on the shield. We believe that it's a sword. And on the other end is a faceless industrialist person that thinks what they're doing is the right thing. Because somebody duped them long before any of us were born. 
Like the industrialists are not to blame. Do not blame the industrialists. They know not what they do. Blaming them only perpetuates the divide and makes it bigger and they win in time without even knowing that them winning is hurting them and they realize that at sometimes the end of their life, they're like, oh shit, I did this to my children and grandchildren. Fuck. Like that's what they run into. This is why letting things go can't be explained in a way that makes sense until you just start taking the risks necessary to try whatever it takes to finally figure out how to do it because it can't be explained because the only person who can explain it to you is you. This is how you let go of these kind of things. You have to learn how to trust yourself in a way that the world doesn't want you to believe that you can trust yourself. If you don't believe that you're a person that's just waiting to go out and cheat on your wife or cheat on your girlfriend, you know, or, you know, murder people or rape people, then you have nothing to fear but fear itself. So stop trying and just take the risk necessary. Don't beat yourself up and just take the risk necessary. And even if you do beat yourself up, let that go too. Just take the risk necessary to not beat yourself up and to just try whatever it takes until you do it. And realize if you don't want to go out and rape and murder and pillage and cheat on your girlfriend or wife or cheat on your husband or boyfriend or, you know, fucking kill everything that you don't agree with, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine because that's exactly how the industrialists got power. And you're going to remember when it comes time for you to have that power, how to avoid the pitfalls that I believe that Google and Facebook fell into. The problem with young <laughs> the the problem with young otherworldly success is you make naive mistakes because you think you're invincible and this isn't wrong it's not wrong to be naive it's not wrong to be inexperienced but realize that if you're if you're surrounded by unethical people that aren't even realizing that they're doing things that are unethical because it's for the greater good eventually you're going to get outnumbered and you're going to get gangbanged by people that say, you know, it's the right thing. It's the right thing. We see this happen in sex cults. The sad thing is, is this is a power cult. It's a money cult because in actuality, it's a control cult. <laughs> control for the greater good is what makes empires of tyrannical control. We have to redefine what control is to us and realize that if you're good at self-control, but it doesn't seem to provide the results you hope for in the long term, it's time to start practicing self-mastery. Realize you need to let go of the belief in absolute right to find out what's absolutely right for you. And that may mean that you piss off other people. They may call you wrong or bad or criminal or illegal or, you know, sinful or evil. But realizing that they're struggling through the same thing as you, 
should give yourself permission to give them more evidences that doing what you believed at one time was bad or wrong or criminal or evil or sinful is actually just realizing that you're on a path and you keep complaining about the potholes and the puddles that you can't avoid. Sometimes you just can't avoid them and you're complaining about this and the person who's going off the beaten path to, you know, avoid the puddles on the road. And there are signs everywhere that say, stay on the road, danger, you know, road ends here. And yours, no, we're not allowed to do that. That's dangerous. That's wrong. We're... And you start blaming them for not complaining about the same things you're complaining about. <laughs> this is the world we live in. Like that parable is literally applicable to whether or not, you know, the culturism that you belong to is industry, consumerism, government, political party, religion, organized religion. Like it doesn't matter. They're all a part of the industrialist system, but the point isn't to blame the system. The point is to do the right thing by realizing sometimes you have to go off the beaten path to do the right thing in a way that doesn't hurt you in the long run. Because if you're the person who keeps doing the right thing, by staying on the beaten path, saying, no, we have, to, we have to fix this from within. We have to fix this from within. That's a delusion. That's why when you get to the end of the path and the person, you know, gets to the end of the path with you, and they, but they're, they're a little bit behind. But you get to the end of the path first and you're like, ah, oh, I got here right. Oh, cool. You know, <laughs> there's a dry cleaner. I can get them to, you know, clean my trousers. And, you know, you're, oh, shoot, I don't have another pair with me. But, you know, yeah, at least I won't get dirty going back home this way. They'll clean my trousers. So it's, you know, you drop them. And there, there you are with your pants off. And the other person comes up and they're like, why? Why don't you have your pants on? Oh, you're gonna have to go in there and get your pants clean because you know you got dirty from all the water and mud. No, my mine didn't get dirty. Well, it's it's what everyone's doing. That's why there's a line there. You just got to do it anyway. No, I'm I'm fine. And they go on, and it's like realizing that freaking criminal or sinner or you know evil person or that occultist or that conspiracy theorist it's oh, all you have to do is walk off the beaten path what an arrogant freak <laughs> it doesn't matter what side of culturism you're in if you're in culturism you're on the same path as anyone else you might judge for you know stepping in different puddles <laughs> oh they're so dumb they're stepping in the deep puddles is realizing you step in three more puddles to avoid the deep puddle. It's it's the same type of different. <laughs> and at the end, you're all having to go to, you know, the the dry cleaners at the end, walk home in your underwear, and then walk back then the next day to, you know, in your underwear through the puddles to pick up your pants and realize on your way back home that you have to go out the next day in dirty trousers because 
the dry cleaner is on the other side. And if you want to have the ability to clean your trousers at home, you you have to work somewhere else or work a lot harder and get your pants even more dirty. It's it's this really, really messed up system where the people who are wise are getting labeled as wrong or evil or criminal or illegal or <laughs> sinners. So many different definitions that mean the same thing because we live in a society where you don't say what you mean and you get caught up in what other people say because pe- when people that say what they mean sound mean, Because saying what you mean feels mean. And people only say what they mean when they're angry or venting or in a really vulnerable state and giving up. Everything that you hear that is somebody being honest without venting, without being angry or without being vulnerable, you're going to believe that they're angry, that they're mean, or that they're weak. But they're wise. That's it. And what I've realized on this this end is I'm I'm kind of late to the party, but I'm also thirty years early. And what's funny for me as a historian, I used to realize the the unspoken wisdom of the silent generation that did what the the Roaring Twenties said that they did, but. They did it in a way that was so sustainable that we've been able to abuse it ever since they forgot to pass on what they knew to us. And uh, this is this is tough because when they passed on, they handed over what they did to industrialists willingly or, you know, just through takeover because there was, you know, not the knowledge needed like we have in an information age to put enough of the pieces together to realize what an industrialist was. They thought they were just older capitalists. And this is this is it. We live in an information age. We can know more that once was only conspiracy to realize, you know, something like the UFO scare in the 1950s. The whole thing about aliens was a false flag. This is not to discount whether or not believing in aliens is right or wrong. This is just to say that the details that don't get talked about are that it was about patents. If you go back to the early 1920s before World War II, there was a patent war um, all across the world for uh, what was called vortex technology, um, also vibrational technology. Um, We can find these in the patent database and archives that if somebody made a really efficient way that I don't know about to look up, you know, the patent frenzy that was going on in the 1920s and 1930s. And then during World War II, we realized, oh, of course, the Nazis and all their love for technology were also, you know, looking into vibrational technology, vortex technology, um, but they were all centralized again, so they went a lot further with it than we did just buying it all up on a governmental level, having government researchers work with these you know, startups and entrepreneurs, um, buying the patents from them and realizing that these could also break the system of industrialism is why after World War II, there was a snatch up of all those scientists working on vibrational tech and vortex tech. 
and um, they didn't need to have people create essentially startups or businesses experimenting with this stuff. They had enough to just, you know, do what they wanted at that point with scientists that didn't actually exist in America. So it's uh, it's interesting. They made vortex tech and vibrational tech almost illegal. In some countries in the world, it's illegal. That's That was interesting. It's actually criminal to research vortex tech in several countries around the world. Um, in America, it's just if they own so many of the patents that they can just, you know, throw margin of innovation at you and say, you know, this is too close to a government owned patent. Yeah. Thanks for inventing this. We now own it. That's, uh, that's why patents and copyrights need to be redefined for the digital age in a way that looks exactly like branding in growth hacking. It's the thank you economy, um, for brands. And that's why this is so important because, Capitalism can exist with brands um, and we need to figure out a way to redefine this margin of innovation. Realize we don't need middlemen for funding when we have crowdsourcing and digital tipping. This is a wake-up call for middleman investors. They have to realize that it's not just enough to have a lot of money anymore, that you have to actually bring value in more ways that is not just funding anymore or else you're doing the same thing that the Southerners did when uh, slavery and indentured servitude was redefined. This isn't to say that they're, they're not good people. It's realizing they just don't know what they don't know. Maybe even just because they don't believe it can be changed. And this is tough because this is a change that can be so drastic when you can afford to not change yourself anymore that you just push away anyone who thinks different. Steve Jobs was definitely on to something. Somebody who was using centralization to make computers used by creatives when at one time they only had the interest of engineers and now Apple is ending the end of its lifetime when, you know, if I was Tim Cook, I'd look into decentralizing the entire organization, turn it into an employee-owned company where the Apple brand was just a simple protocol of quality control. I think that would be a great way for Tim Cook to honor uh, Steve Jobs' legacy of taking something that was originally open source and closed sourcing it so that you know, it wasn't confusing as fuck for creatives. And now it's time to bring things full circle. And that would create a legacy that, in my mind, would... <laughs> from an emotionally intelligent side, like, that would make... That would make up for all the sins that people don't want to have empathy for Steve Jobs for, realizing that his personality is exactly how he made it all work. And everyone's bitching and moaning that he was mean because he was honest and he was doing whatever it took. And he didn't give a crap about other people's short-sighted beliefs. And he was cruel to them because he was highly disagreeable and highly conscientious. <laughs> if Apple just used the money that it has in its reserves to just buy up 
all the stock and make it an employee-owned company. Imagine, imagine all the people that are engineers and designers alike that could be freelancers for a quality protocol and they're all working for the same end goal vision that the tool that existed to do this was so immature when Steve Jobs died that there's no way he could have paid attention to it when he was dealing with what he was dealing with at the end of his life. But I can absolutely guarantee that this is the kind of thing that, you know, if I was Steve, <laughs> if I was Steve Wozniak, I'd fucking go to Tim Cook, use some, you know, big press release to say Steve Wozniak is coming back to Apple to integrate an open source quality control method for, you know, decentralizing Apple from the top down. That would be beautiful. It would be a global organization that they'd all get to exit if they wanted to and realize they get to immortalize Jobs' legacy in a way that is as radical and world-shifting as a CEO getting pushed out of a company and then realizing they need the visionary that they pushed out because he was too visionary and made them uncomfortable like nails on a chalkboard. I would love to see the day where Steve Wozniak and Tim Cook team up to give Apple a rebirth that the fans deserve and the customers can bitch and moan and complain about all they want. The shareholders can bitch and moan and complain about all they want. But wouldn't that be the ultimate fuck you to the dissenters of Apple when it's on the decline to do the most radical thing that's ever happened in industry since Steve Jobs coming the fuck back to Apple? <laughs> All, it's funny like to use an industrialist term against them. Just do it. <laughs> oh, But, you know... This is all crazy. And here's to the crazy ones.